don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, five fragments of the apartheid landscape in Palestine with Alex Shams. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Alex Shams, uh, who for you might remember, uh, it's the second time that uh, he's my guest on Archipelago, but that's something we, we knew when we did the first one, it was a, a two, two chapters a series. So Alex is an um, is editor-in-chief of uh, Adjam Media Collective, as well as a journalist for Man News Agency in Palestine, in Bethlehem. Um, good evening, Alex. Good. In the first um, in the first chapter of uh, of our conversation, we had talked about uh, the production of gender in uh, Iranian cities, and uh, today we will we will be more specific to the context in which we speak, which is the context of Palestine, and um, talk about. Uh, maybe uh, five um, situations in Palestine that would be representative of the, of, uh, of the apartheid um, situation that Palestinians have to, have to deal with on a daily basis. Um, but before maybe we do so, um, um, I think that last time we haven't really talked about um, uh, you work with uh, this uh, Adjam Media Collective, That uh, that is uh, very prolific and and uh, and um, deal with uh, many topics in um, in a region that actually would be useful for for you to define for us, please. Sure. So I think um, Aja Media Collective really began about three years ago, almost, um, and it was um, if not more actually at this point, um, but. I guess at the time it was founded by me and, and two friends who were who were also grad students uh, at Harvard at that time, and we were, I guess, part of a lot of debates within academia and within the setting we were in, um, that seemed to be relaying a lot of information. We, and we were consuming a lot of information, reading, writing, partaking in, in discussions that didn't seem to be at all reflected outside of the academic world, and I think for this. Uh, for us, this was a bit bizarre, confusing how it could be that two different conversations, one in mainstream media and one within academia, were happening that seemed to take completely different assumptions and take completely different uh, you know, understandings of what, uh, of, of what was normative and what wasn't. And so at this time, we began thinking, and I think there was a larger process at that time happening with Jadalia and with a few other similar kinds of projects that were emerging that were hoping to... I don't want to say bridge that gap, but to bring different voices into that conversation and ensure that there was, you know, a, a flow of information in all directions. So, on top of this issue we identified, I guess, regarding academia and its kind of isolation, um, we were also looking at how area studies and how, um, you know, the study of the state and of the nation state had really begun to replace so many different kinds of knowledge um, that existed and really had narrowed our scope and understanding of what constituted knowledge in such a way that, you know, in order to understand, uh, you know, Iran, according, like, according to Iranian studies, you have to study Iran as a nation state, as a country. Or if you want to study the Arab world, you have to study the Arab world as, an, as, as a group of nation states and as countries. 
But so much of the history that we know happened, that we know existed, that, that is not defined by the state boundaries that exist today, um, you, know, you know, it's crossing and, and it's, it's a movement back and forth uh, between these areas. And, and the historical resonances, for example, that we saw specifically in the region, um, I mean, and for lack of a better word, we get stuck with the region as the only way to describe it. But, you know, the Iran and, and, and Pakistan, South Asia, Afghanistan, Central Asia, and even into the Caucasus and Turkey and, you know, Iraq on the other side uh, and the Gulf region, you, you do have this, these kinds of historical resonances and cultural mixtures and, and, um, and histories and memories that do persist until now, but which are completely elided by the form of knowledge production that uh, you know is taken for granted in most universities, and not only universities in the in the mainstream press as well. You have the Arab world, you have the Middle East, you have um, these categories that we don't. One, we don't get a sense of other categories like Central Asia, like countries like Afghanistan that get kind of stuck in the middle of nowhere and find themselves in this, like intellectual and academic no man's land, so to speak. Um, but you also erase the the fact that there's no point in history in which we can look at which Central Asia became distinct from Iran, which became distinct from the Caucasus region, which became distinct from Iraq or the, the Persian Gulf or, or let's say, quote unquote, the Arab world more broadly. So I think for us, um, we were also interested in really kind of pushing back against narratives of the state, of the nation, and of culture that did take for granted these kinds of boundaries and these kinds of borders. And while in academia... Uh, there, there is obviously some effort to do so. Um, at the same time, you know, we find, for example, that there, there's no Central Asian studies to speak of. There's no research. There's no, um, if you want to take a course on Afghanistan in a university, it's almost impossible because it doesn't fit anywhere. And there's no one who's going to fund that kind of uh, study or research. So I think we were, like I said, trying to kind of uh, address what we saw as, as a gap um, in, in the way we think about knowledge and the way we think about research and the way we, we produce knowledge and in which we consume knowledge. Um, but also, like I said, that other gap as well between the kinds of conversations that are ha happening uh, in an academic setting, uh, the kind of language that's being used that, that can at times be impenetrable outside of an academic setting and relies on a certain set of knowledges like prior, um, as well as others. So, if I had to describe, I guess this was kind of a roundabout way to describe the collective, but right now our work primarily focuses on trying to kind of um, bring, uh, you know, critical approaches to the region, to, you know, what, what, is, what are these constructs we have, what are these ideas we have, what is the kind of culture that has emerged. Um, that really, and I think one of the interesting points is that at this point we don't have a word for it. There's no, there's no really word or... or um, you know, I've heard the word, for example, ecumen used, but there's no, there's not really a word that describes these kind of linkages that don't either make sense according to nation state or according to language. Um, and so for us, I think uh, what we're trying to do is compile these, these kind of critical approaches to different topics. And whether that be by, um, you know, taking certain myths of certain nations and states, particularly Iran, um, and kind of breaking down the historical biases and inaccuracies and kind of the, the, the way that this knowledge is being produced and how the, 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 the process itself is determining the outcome. Um, or, like I said, kind of looking beyond that and trying to also bring a, a critical approach to, to diaspora as well and how we think about diaspora and how we think about um, how these labels and categories travel even beyond the region we're speaking of geographically. Mm -hmm. Well, you see, you were, you were maybe afraid that this beginning of the conversation may not be entirely linked to the one we will have about Palestine right now, but I can, I can already see a, a point of linkage um, that um, 
that uh, incarnates itself through um, a little example of complexification of of um, of uh, let's say the, the demographics and the history of Palestine uh, in this uh, recent recent uh, encounter you've made uh, with the Samaritans of Nablus, uh, which I thought was 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 a great a great uh, example of of how you work with that jam and like maybe finding finding a particular example that proves that things are so much more complex than than the way we we usually think of it so could maybe let's start by that so that it i think i think it's a very interesting story who who are the samaritans that usually we we know from like the 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 good one from the from the bible but so could could you tell us about this encounter definitely um i think so as i think most people will be familiar with the story of the good samaritan or other kind of like you said random or chance appearances that seem to occur in in bible stories um But what's interesting is that a lot of these legacies that we know through the Bible also exist currently, and, and there are certain aspects of them that, that are present in Palestinian society. And so a great case in point is kind of the Samaritan community. Um, as far as I knew, growing up, you know, the Samaritans were a group in the Bible that the Jews didn't like and were somehow, you know, there was a good one, but the rest of them were bad. Now, what's interesting is that the reason that this let's say, bias or perspective comes through in the Bible is because, like, according to mainstream Jewish scholars, the Samaritans were considered this kind of outcast, marginalized group. Um, and from my understanding of that history, and I'm, I'm not an expert on, on that history in particular, but my understanding is that during the Babylonian exile, the, the elites of, you know, Judean society, the Jewish priests in particular, moved to Babylonia um, and in many ways were influenced by Aramaic as a language. And so you see in ancient Hebrew this influence from Aramaic, but you also have... Um, the this kind of broader Zoroastrian influence that does penetrate into Judaism at that time, into rabbinical Judaism at that time. And when they returned uh, to this to this region of the world, um, the Samaritans, who were a, a group of people that had not at any point kind of gone to Babylonia and didn't have this experience, um, ended up being this kind of marginal but also competitor kind of a rival sect to the Jews. Um, at that time, into mainstream Judaism at that time, because I think it would have been seen as kind of a, a, a difference or splitting of sects that then began to develop its own kind of orthodoxies within them. And until, you know, over the course of the last 2,000, 2,500 years, the Samaritan community has really kind of lost whatever potential it had to rival Judaism as a religion. Um, and today, you still have about 700 Samaritans who are living uh, here Um, who are divided between two different areas, one being um, Nablus, the Mount Gerizim, which is located directly next to Nablus, and it's um, considered to be their holy site. And according to their beliefs, it's kind of the rival to Jerusalem. Uh, it's interesting because you can go to this village and you can talk to them, and, and they have a museum um, in which one of the priests is working, and he's kind of explaining that the temple in Jerusalem, that, the, that according to the Jewish faith, is kind of... Um, you know, it's kind of fetishized in a certain way at this moment in history. Um, they believe it's actually just some, it was part of some fake political rivalry and uh, and the real temple was at Mount Jerzim and Nablus and this was the kind of the competitor temple that for them is the real temple. And so it's interesting because, like I said, you have this community of about 400 living there and then about 300 who are living in a Palestinian neighborhood in a city inside Israel right now. And... I mean, first of all, this this community, which has existed in Nablus um, and has been kind of a part of the fabric of Palestinian life for many, many years, um, 
also find themselves a subject of this kind of political uh, sport, let's say. Because on one hand, in 1948, the Jordanians came, the Jordanian king came when he occupied the West Bank, and he said that anyone who hurts a Samaritan hurts myself, my own body. And so you have, you know, they have Jordanian passports. Then when the Israelis came, they put, gave them Israeli passports. Uh, and even now there's a checkpoint in front of the village, like staffed by Israeli soldiers, um, which, is, which is very strange and bizarre because the, the Samaritans in Nablus actually lived in a quarter of the old city until the first intifada, but because of the violence of the Israeli attacks on Nablus, moved to this mount, the, the holy mountain that for them was a holy site, but wasn't where they lived previously. Um, but now, you know, there's an Israeli settlement directly beside it and this kind of checkpoint that encircles it. And, and then on top of this, they also have the Palestinian passport. And, and even in, in Palestinian society and politics, um, you have this kind of sportsmanship happening around it or, or kind of playing around it because um, it's claimed that these are like the Palestinian Jews and, and, you know, this is like the Jewish community of Palestine, which is true to a certain extent. Um, but what's also lighted or missed in these descriptions is that there was a, a mainstream rabbinical Jewish community in Palestine that also existed prior to Zionism. Um, and that while Samaritans have kind of retained this Palestinian identity, retained the Arabic language and have returned, retained a lot of their commonalities with other Palestinians around them, um, Jewish Palestinians who, who do, did exist prior to the state of Israel have not um, managed to kind of escape this process of Zionization and, um, and Israelization that has kind of occurred. This identity, this splitting of identities that's happened. Mm-hmm. Well, this splitting of identities um, is uh, actually very interesting insofar that... Um, it once again it 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 it, uh, it allows a sort of complexification of and 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 therefore not an essentialization of the situation where um, which which has some pretty huge consequences in in how we would like to look at the future maybe in the sense that um, there's been a, as everybody knows there's been a lot of tractation to actually have a state of Palestine recognized uh, internationally, which is uh, something that I think many of us are very much uh, afraid of and, uh, and see it as a sort of, uh, um, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but maybe a sort of update of the Oslo Accords in some way, in some ways. And, um, and I think that uh, as today we will speak about apartheid situation, apartheid landscapes, um, uh, the very word of apartheid is, is tends to tends to keep uh, Palestine as one as one um, uh, entity uh, uh, with with its demographics of, uh, of uh, I mean, whether we say it through religions of uh, Judaism, uh, uh, Islam, and, and uh, Christianity, or or uh, even then it's still pretty essentialized. So um, we should we should embrace this complexity, which uh, you just. Uh, Give us a little um, preview on, but so if we if we if we look um, if we if we maybe uh, go back to the present uh, to maybe uh, re-evoke the future later maybe uh, and if we speak about those five um, five particular apartheid situation, um, I think maybe we could start with um, <clears throat> we could start with a fairly uh, a fairly well-known one, which is uh, the segregation of roads. Uh, throughout the West Bank, we just arrived from looking at the Gilo Viaduct, uh, that is uh, paradigmatic for everyone who's been working in uh, uh, along those issue, uh, around those issues of this viaduct uh, of uh, Road uh, Road uh, 60, in um, uh, that 
that uh, is uh, technically belongs to the western side of the wall, but that actually penetrates within the within the eastern side, but only accessible to the to the Israeli plate cars. Uh, um, and so this sort of, uh, uh, I mean, this this is very much the, the the infrastructure of apartheid when when we look at, when we look at the roads, when we look at all this infrastructure. Um, and uh, and so through, throughout your work uh, with uh, with Maham and and your your life in Palestine for about a year and a half now, uh, could you could you maybe um, uh, bring a degree of precision to this uh, to this description? <laughs> I'll try at mm. least. Um, I think before I came here, one of the most difficult parts, or, or let's say one of the parts that, in retrospect, I, I had trouble understanding previously. Um, was how much the topography informs the whole discussion and the whole um, nature of the, con the conflict, so to speak, um, but of the occupation and kind of how apartheid manifests in its physical form. Um, as you explained, I mean, the basic outline, of course, is that, you know, you have this kind of hilly landscape in which um, the majority of Palestinian towns and cities are built kind of between hills or along the sides of hills. Um, and then you have this very specific architecture of construction that, that is very much obviously informed by military planning and, and not only informed indirectly, but also directly in terms of the relationship of the, of the you know, the military infrastructure to the planning infrastructure within the West Bank. Um, which has very been very precise about where the settlements are going and, and which hilltops they're located in. Um, and even, like you said, for example, the, with the, the Gilo bypass road, or, or um, I mean, they call it the tunnels road, which is funny because you have this road that um, goes first above uh, a Palestinian city and then beneath the same Palestinian city, um, in which it crosses this valley where the city is located, but then when the city kind of goes up the, the hill, the city of Bejala we're speaking of, it kind of goes underneath as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and like I said, this topography, even when you look at the map of the settlements and where the Palestinian cities and towns are located, um, it, it be, it's impossible, I think, to understand why and how these things are located as such without kind of getting a sense of this topography and the elevation and the hills involved. Um, and when you get to the road issue and to the separation of road issue, you're also experiencing this, is that you're not also, you're not only... Um, I mean, maybe this is sometimes part of the trouble we have with kind of describing or with even presenting um, this kind of segregation and apartheid is that it's not, let's say, a flat landscape where you're looking at one road for one people and another road for another people. In certain places, there, there is that division and it is flat and you can kind of see it straight in front of you um, between, you know, Israeli play cards on, um, on one road and, and Palestinians on another road. Um, but uh, but you do have this delineation of space which is not only confined to the roads, which does, you, you know, you have networks of roads that go atop hills, that go around hills, um, which are completely limited uh, to Palestinians, but they're limited, let's say, by... It's almost, it's almost, it's, it would be difficult to notice almost if you didn't realize those were limit, limited. If you're not Palestinian and you were passing, you wouldn't be able to see these limitations, whether it be with concrete blocks, whether it be with small iron bars, um, you know, digging up the road. You know, there's so many kind of tactics and procedures that have been implemented which speak to this kind of legalistic uh, kind of apartheid, which doesn't obviously announce itself as apartheid or it doesn't announce itself as racial discrimination, which op but operates very, very clearly, um, particularly on the end of those receiving it as a racialized kind of discrimination and, and based on, you know, nationality. And um, I think it's uh, this, like I said, yeah, the topography really kind of informs these distinctions and also 
Um, I think it also explains why for Israeli Jews it's so difficult sometimes to see it, to see this apartheid. And, and you know, getting past the issue of um, whether they want to see it or wh- whether these whether settlers, for example, want to be aware of what's going on around them or, or if they really don't know, which is a question that always comes up in the Israeli left, um, is how much about how much of this is about giving them information versus them knowing and not and just not wanting to under, to understand and to process and to you know acknowledge. Um, but there is even the very at the very level of visuals, you know, this kind of spatial, uh, 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 you know, the setting before them, the, the world they're presented with, the world they see is set up in a very specific way so that you can't see what's beyond um, and you can't see what is being understood or what is being seen from the other side. And this, and, and, the, and this is very brilliantly executed with the topography. So even, for example, um, this tunnel that we were, were kind of talking about, this bridge and then tunnel road, the Highway 60, uh, as it goes from Jerusalem to Hebron through, through Beit Jala near Bethlehem, um, you know, from the perspective in, in Bejala, where we're looking, um, you see this massive road, this kind of infrastructure that doesn't exist in the West Bank except for Israeli settlers, um, that towers over the entire city. And really, you know, you have these big rods kind of crossing into the city. And then from on top, if you're above it, you can see these huge concrete barriers that kind of prevent you even from seeing inside. Um, you just get kind of a glimpse of the cars passing by with these big concrete barriers and these kind of Palestinian homes on the outside of the concrete barrier. There is something spectacular and something um, kind of brilliant about how banal it is from the inside. When you're on that road, when you're driving on that road, whether it be on a bus or on a car, you really don't see anything around you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and these concrete barriers that we're kind of describing work very precisely because you you know they, they exist for example on the left side where where there are many houses in which are populated but on the right side they open up so that you see fields of olive orchards um and what's hilarious of course is that if you think about it for two seconds one must understand that an olive orchard cannot exist without you know a farmer who's taking care of an olive orchard um but but you're not even the, the moment of glimpsing the olive orchard doesn't allow you to ask the question of where the olive farmer is um because, of course, if you ask that question, you realize that this person, the, the land has been uh, confiscated in order to create this exact panorama that you're looking at, this quote-unquote biblical, bucolic, rural panorama um, that is very much at the base of a lot of, I, I would say, a lot of Israeli residential architecture and uh, Israeli residential architecture and kind of how it functions, which is to obscure the existence of any kind of living Palestinian presence um, and very much present the viewer with uh, these kind of, you know, quote-unquote biblical perspectives of a landscape that is at once untouched, but on the other hand is clearly cultivated. That's funny. You, you give her an even more architectural account than I was, than I was expecting, but, uh, so that's perfect. But maybe um, to also address the sort of... Um, um, the tractations that, that are at work... Uh, um, behind uh, behind those uh, those uh, segregated infrastructure, um, something that struck me uh, the two last times I was here, and uh, again again uh, this time, but with maybe a bit less surprise, is the amount the amount of um, of uh, big signs uh, uh, along the wall, written U.S. aid. In, in a program, in an economical program of, in, of help, head aid to infrastructure, like the U.S. have one for um, uh, in partnership with the Palestinian Authority, some uh, the the United States come to come to um, uh, reinforce the segregation by by the establishment of those roads. So, could could you maybe tell us tell us more about that? 
it's almost like I mean what you're saying is I think quite true in terms of the the increased visibility of these roads and the increased visibility of um, you know these huge USAID signs uh, everywhere popping up everywhere inside cities outside of cities on roads you know on any kind of project anywhere that's being implemented with any kind of USAID um, and it's 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 kind of funny because like you said it does very much. Um, create or, or make concrete uh, and almost irreversible these changes that are occurring around us. Because let's say, for example, the road between Bethlehem and Ramallah, which should be a straight road that goes through Jerusalem and which continues to Ramallah. Now, because of the checkpoints and because of the wall, this road is, you know, cannot be used by Palestinians um, from the West Bank. But what you have on the other side is that a very small, narrow mountain, I mean, uh, kind of canyon road that once was kind of a marginal road within the West Bank um, has now become a primary thoroughfare for Palestinians who are trying to travel from the north to the south. And at the same time, of course, you have USAID, which is coming in and, and, and which is aware of the, the, you know, on one hand, they're aware of their policies because the settlements that are blocking these roads and the Israeli military infrastructure that is blocking that main road that, I, that we spoke about to Ramallah um, is also funded by the United States. And it's, it's directly funded in many ways by, by the, the U.S. Um, and so you have, like you said, these kind of... USAID, on one hand, builds the infrastructure of apartheid, but it also presents itself in such a way to Palestinians as if it is just kind of this neutral observer that's that's kind of helping and which is allowing you to travel and which, you know, in the face of everything, we're going to, you know, help you move around and increase your mobility. And, and, and all this, it all fits into this kind of larger discourse of rights and the rights that the international community is going to grant you and give you. Um, and it's... It's kind of funny because even in Bethlehem, for example, I know this gets a little bit away from roads, but um, I believe last year was the first Christmas where the mayor was um, Fatah mayor, um, that she wasn't from, um, you know, the PFLP or from Hamas, which are both on the, the U.S. terror list. And so Christmas in Bethlehem was relatively a low-key celebration until recently because of the economic problems that Bethlehem finds itself in um, because of the wall and because of obviously the occupation and, the, and apartheid more broadly. Um, but the USAID very prominently sponsored uh, the Christmas celebration. And, and so in, in you know, Manger Square, where you, have, um, you had these big posters along one of the walls of one of the buildings on the square with these huge USAID logos and signs. Um, and so a group of uh, activists from one of the refugee camps, which is on the edge of Bethlehem, in which there are almost daily clashes where Israeli forces are firing tear gas and, and they've killed a number of people and injured dozens, um, they went and put uh, a number of tear gas canisters and other kind of made in USA, you know, the, the rubber bullets, tear gas canisters, the kind of things that are being lobbed at them or, or shot at them uh, on a tree uh, in Major Square, one of the many trees kind of around the square. And lo and behold, they were arrested <laughs> um, by the municipality authorities who, of course, use the excuse of tourism and the excuse of, um, you know, making sure Bethlehem is a touristic city and it's a, a city that presents its best face to the outside um, and which doesn't, you know... Uh, it doesn't not live up to the reputation of the USAID-funded celebrations. So I guess Christmas this year, they didn't put up the, the huge USAID banners, but they put up USAID banners throughout other parts of the city too. Um, I guess that didn't directly answer the, the question no. about the roads, but... No, but I think we can... Uh, I, I mean, the question of the, the roads was also um, much more general than the, the other things we will uh, be talking about, and that relates to some... Uh, Articles we've been writing from uh, from Maham, 
Um, and uh, one of them being, um, well, this double example of uh, those, uh, those enclaves, um, uh, Palestinian villages surrounded, uh, literally surrounded, it's not a figure of speech, uh, by, the, by the Israeli uh, uh, barrier. Uh, so the village of uh, Bahalaja and um, and the other one I forgot the name I'm sorry uh, Nabi Samuel yeah so could you tell us about those two enclaves please? sure I can start with Nabi Samuel because I was there recently um, so Nabi Samuel is this hill just north of Jerusalem um, that's it's so the Nabi Samuel itself means in Arabic the prophet Samuel um, and it's the the resting place of the biblical prophet Samuel um, and it's located in the West Bank. Um, because the area is just north and south of Jerusalem are within the West Bank. And so it's located just across that line. Um, and its residents have, uh, you know, West Bank residency cards. They're West Bank ID holders, as we say. But what happened in 1967, uh, obviously besides Israel occupying uh, the West Bank and East Jerusalem, is that it also annexed East Jerusalem and massively expanded um, the borders of East Jerusalem. So it began to include large sections that were actually within, inside the West Bank. Um, you know, a collection of villages and a collection of kind of basically random villages that happen to be within that perimeter. Um, and and that, the decision of where to annex and which parts of, of the villages around Jerusalem became part of Jerusalem at that moment were taken by military planners. I believe there was a committee of military planners and based on kind of the strategic um, hills and mountains and kind of the vantage points, they, they, they created this um, really nonsensical, from, from any perspective, you can look at cultural, social, historical uh, expansion of Jerusalem in every direction. And and so Nabi Samuel is kind of one of these villages that ended up in a weird position because of this, this move. Because whereas the majority of East Jerusalem, that came, this region that came to be understood as East Jerusalem, um, they were given East Jerusalem residency cards, which is a specific status which... Um, which allows you, you know, travel within Israel, but doesn't allow you, let's say, um, to vote or doesn't give you kind of the rights of citizenship uh, in Israel. Um, these people, however, were considered West Bank. Uh, they considered they continue to be considered West Bank citizens, despite the fact that they kind of became part of East Jerusalem's region. Um, and so, in 1967, a majority of the people in the village fled um, out of fear of what what would be done to them, um, which which is a very founded fear based on let's say the 1948 war, where 750,000 people were forced to flee, thousands were killed, and there were kind of um, you know killings and and um, other things done by you know the Zionist militias that cr that created this mass expulsion and this mass um, flight of Palestinians at that moment. Uh, and so in 1967, you had a lot of villages. From what I understand, about 200,000 to 300,000 people also fled, um, whether to, to Jordan or to other places. And so majority of the people in this village fled, and um, a collection were left over. And they were living, you know, in the in the this village which surrounds the shrine. But within a few years, so the early 1970s, Israeli authorities came, and on behalf of archaeology, which is a very common excuse here because of, you know, the, the wealth of archaeological knowledge, and particularly if you're an Israeli archaeologist, the kind of Jewish history and Jewish archaeology that you're looking for to prove your right to exist here and your, to prove your right to be on this land, so to speak, um, they demolished the entire village. So they destroyed the entire urban, you know, historic fabric of this village that had been surrounding this, this site that's been there for thousands of years. Um, and a few dozen people from the village moved kind of just down the hill and put up a few houses and kind of lived next to it. And now what's happened since then um, is that in the 2000s, when Israel began building this kind of the apartheid wall, the separation wall through the region, it put it 
you know, as some people have, have, have argued, and w- which does make a lot of sense, um, is that the point of the wall, or, or one of the ideas of the separation wall, is to create a kind of de facto border situation. Um, and so by placing the border north of this region, obviously they had, they had built a number of settlements and they were continuing to build settlements. And the idea was that if they were forced or pressured into creating any kind of final agreement re- uh, regarding the borders, that this would become the border north. And so the people in the village, however, have West Bank ID cards, which means that legally, technically, they cannot be in Jerusalem. Um, and so you have this kind of strange situation, which is repeated in many other places, which I'll get, get to, and kind of how it, how it is a larger issue, um, where these people are illegal in their home, own homes because they're not allowed to be in Jerusalem and the homes that they're occupying are in Jerusalem. Um, and so what the military authorities did in order to resolve this was, um, first of all, they made it illegal for any of the residents of the village to leave the village uh, without military authorization. So including, let's say, students who go to school, um, you know, they travel on a special bus, and the special bus goes to a checkpoint which, which enters like a cluster of Palestinian villages, three of Palestinians, that are also surrounded by the wall. Um, but they, of course, compared to the villages of Nabi Samuel, they have the luck of being inside the wall. Because Nabi Samuel, you know, I mean, it's been described, and I think the best way to think about it is this kind of invisible cage. Because there are sensors, there's surveillance, and they know if they, if they go too far down the hill where their house is, they, they'll kind of be fined or they'll be imprisoned. Um, and so... I mean, what you have, which I think uh, is very much indicative of, of the larger processes we have going, or you have kind of you see here in Palestine, um, is that there is this clear attempt to take as much of the land as possible, obviously, with as few of the residents as possible, and then in order, and then to create to make life as miserable as possible for those people who do stay behind, um, in order to somehow pressure them off the land, in order to create this kind of the fantasy that uh, the Israeli state does want to appear before it. And in Nabi Samuel, I think specifically because it is a tourist site, it is a, a shrine that Israeli Jews, you know, religious Israeli Jews do visit on a regular basis. Um, you have the whole, what we were speaking about earlier, of kind of the creation of a bucolic, untouched, but clearly cultivated landscape, um, uh, you know, kind of that's built into the landscape, built into the project itself, because the point is to create this kind of timeless shrine um, which is clearly Palestinian architecture, but, you know, we're not going to mention those architectural fests, which are clearly not, you know, that relate to a population that existed here before. You have the incomplete annihilation of the village that you don't see any continuity between the shrine and the people who live around the shrine and which were obviously historically the caretakers of the shrine. Um, And then you also have, for example, the the building of of military sites beside the shrine so that this new slum uh, village, which is kind of which the remaining residents are living in, uh, basically can't be seen from the shrine. You know, you just kind of see in the distance um, some sheep and, you know, maybe the, the tops, the water towers of some buildings. And then, and then on the other side, even when you look out towards the northern West Bank um, from this site, what you're looking at is a cluster of Palestinian villages, like I said, surrounded by the wall and, um, and a number of Israeli settlements and then other parts of the West Bank. And actually you can see Ramallah from there as well. And... Um, What's interesting, though, is that, again, the, the wall is built in such a way, and all of this is built in such a way, that it, it almost seems like this kind of bucolic landscape. And unless you're forbidden from entering that landscape, um, I think it would be difficult for you to understand, because the, the tourists that are coming, they come on their car from Jerusalem or wherever, they drive up, they enter the parking lot, they park, and they leave. Um, and there's no sign, and there's no indication to them, um, unless they do some research, or, you know, ask someone, for example, um, that the people in the village themselves can't take the same trip that they take every day. Um, 
and so it's interesting, I guess, because you see how this architecture of exclusion and um, the, you know how apartheid is planned in very specific ways and how and how precise um, it has to be done in order to make it invisible to those who have that privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and Nabi Samuel, like I was saying, is indicative of, of larger trends, um, not only in the most broad sense in which you, you find aspects of this in every village in Palestine in some way, um, but also in the fact that it is in what is called the seam zone. Um, and so the seam zone being the those communities which are built, um, I mean, the easiest way to say it is on the wrong side of the wall. But basically, the you know the apartheid wall, which is being built by Israel in the West Bank, uh, f- is completely inside the, the West Bank. It's not on the border. Um, and so you have about 50,000 uh, Palestinians who are on the Israeli side or on the Jerusalem side of that wall and are thus in a place where, according to their own permits or their own legal status, it's illegal for them to be. They cannot reside in. And, um, and under, in, uh, under Israeli law, and this kind of goes back to the continuity of, of apartheid and of occupation and, and how we can't say that it began in 1967 because it didn't, because the same laws that are being used to dispossess people in the seam zone um, and to say that their, their presence is in its, it constitutes absence um, because they cannot be in the situation they're in, they cannot be in the place they're in, are the same laws that were used to, um, to confiscate the property of Palestinians within Israel. Um, who either fled or moved abroad and came back, or even those who fled and never came back, or even, as I said, many many of the people who never fled and were remained in their homes but were considered to be absentee um, through this kind of legal maneuvering. And and so what you have with the seam zone, like I said, is these 50,000 people who are stuck in communities which... Um, which either, you know, Nebi Samuel, you have this kind of invisible cage, other communities you have which some kind of wall is built around them, or all roads are cut off and they're only connected by one military checkpoint. So in this sense, you have this com- a complete surveillance of village life. You have, um, you know, cameras set up at every end of the village. You have the confiscation of all the lands around the village so that, for example, the, you know, these are agricultural communities, so that the only way of life that the people in those communities are familiar with and know um, the, you know they're unable to have access to anymore um, and and then the, the brilliant thing is that they prevent access for a number of years and then they invoke often Ottoman legal passages which say that if land is left uh, uncultivated for a certain number of years then it becomes public mm-hmm. land and can be taken by the state um, and you have this, this bizarre variety of Israeli and Ottoman and British codes that are being invoked, um, all for the same exact purpose but all of course with this like neat paper trail that suggests this kind of neutral, non-biased, um, you know, law that's standing above and just kind of carrying out its duties without any respect to nationality or race or, or any of these other things that we know obviously are being taken account and are, are a part of the whole equation. Um, so I think, uh, so I guess this kind of brings us to Al-Walaja a bit, which is closer to Bethlehem. Um, like I said, this seems, you know, Nabi Samuel has this kind of invisible cage around it, but uh, villages like Al-Walaja, for example, they, uh, tunnels are built beneath uh, the Israeli settlements beside them or beneath the roads that are only open to Israelis um, or to Israeli license plates, I should say, um, in the areas around them. And um, so on top of the fact that their lands are confiscated, their access is is taken away, um, there are military checkpoints. So, for example, no one can come visit many of these villages. Um, And when I say no one, I mean, let's say families, friends, um, any any of the, the kind of, like, uh, familial structure that existed, they're no longer, you know, these places become completely inaccessible to non-residents. And um, so on top of 
uh, I, you know, and, and Walaja, it's funny because the residents actually do make the explicit comparison to the idea of Walaja being a little version of Palestine, because um, and it's, it, it does reflect, you know, it's similar to Nabi Samuel or parallels their thing, their experience in a certain way, which is that in 1948, when Israel was kind of created and, and the Palestinians were pushed out, the people of Walaja were forced off of their land, uh, and so they fled to the hill that directly looked at their land. And they constructed a new village on that on that place. And so they saw, for example, a few years afterwards in the 1950s when Israel came and methodically destroyed every single, almost every single Palestinian village and all of the homes that existed. Um, and, and you can almost imagine being a refugee sitting on your hill and watching your home being destroyed in front of you even though no one's living in it. And But then in 1967 when the occupation of the West Bank began, um, you have... The, the similar process which began with the land, ex, land confiscation, the expropriation, um, and the creation of settlements around Walaja in such a way that eventually the community became completely isolated from the network that it was originally a part of, which is kind of this larger Bethlehem um, region. And, and so today what you have in Walaja is, this, is continued pressure in every single way possible to make life as miserable as possible um, you know, without, and this is the, the thing they've really mastered, is without, let's say, killing people as much, but making it so hard to live or do anything at the most basic level, um, and confiscating one by one, and demolishing homes one by one, and of course the demolitions are carried out because locals don't have permits, residents don't have permits, but residents apply for permits and then are told that they're actually illegal and cannot live in that place because they're not Jerusalem residents. You know, there this complex legal cycle um, that pre- that prevents um, any Palestinian resident of Al-Walajan from actually, you know, legalizing their status. And um, and so, and of, and of course, back to the kind of like the, the visuals uh, or the kind of how this is understood then from the Israeli Jewish, particularly Israeli settler side, um, is that it becomes completely invisible. Um, even in terms of vantage points and panoramas and, and the, the higher elevations utilized in the construction of settlements, it becomes almost impossible to kind of see or to notice these, these things occurring around you unless you're actually trying. Um, and so you have projects, for example, where the, you know, the, the residents of Al-Walaj are recruited to work and create the settlements that will help displace them or, or you know, to otherwise destroy their community in, for the sake of the settlement. But it becomes one of the only... Uh, ways in order to make money. It becomes really, if, if the agricultural industry in these communities are destroyed, um, then you more or less have to work for the Israeli state because the Israeli state surrounds you. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> well, going back, going back to what you were saying as uh, the, the, village, uh, the village of Arab uh, um, um calling, calling itself a, a little Palestine, uh, I mean, uh, we, we're talking really about a very small territory, um, another another example of that uh, that kind of encompass um, all the apartheid strategy into a very small space, and obviously because it is a very small space, and uh, the the antagonism, uh, the intensity of the antagonism is even higher. Um, um, so this place would be uh, Hebron, uh, so in south in southwest bank, and uh, with um, with. Uh, very frequent uh, clashes and uh, um, se- Israeli settlers living literally above uh, uh, Palestinian uh, Palestinian houses, uh, a little bit like in uh, old Jerusalem, but uh, with degrees of violence that have nothing to do with uh, with what we see in Jerusalem. Um, and so you've been you've been writing uh, 
a few articles there in particular regarding uh, the women of Hebron. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I think what you're saying is true in the sense that Hebron, while Al-Walaja might be a little Palestine, Hebron is almost like Palestine with every single thing going on intensified yeah. on the mm-hmm. same exact space. Um, Which makes it a, a very, very uh, difficult place to to be. <laughs> it's miserable, certainly. uncomfortable, yeah. um, and just just one of the most absolutely awful, most depressing places you can kind of imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the basic setup to give a, to give a sense of the place is you have this kind of what's really a beautiful old city. Um, it's kind of historic Palestinian city that's built around the tomb of the patriarchs, um, which is the you know, the tomb of Abraham and, and kind of members of his family, and which in the last 30, 20, 30 years um, has become home to, to an increasingly large Israeli settlement, a kind of Jewish uh, settlers who have concentrated in parts of the old city around the, the tomb. And so you have, you know, one settlement that's on the hill next to the city, but then you also have um, settlers who have gone methodically house by house and evicted local residents in order to, to build... Um, well, actually, not to build, but just to take over their homes, mm-hmm. and so you have. A few... I, should, I should have said also, it's 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 ruled under a special status uh, since uh, 1993 Oslo Accords. Like uh, the entire West Bank is under one 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 territorial system, and then Hebron is like has as as its own because it's so. Once again, it's like every everything is there in a, such a small space. So. Yeah, exactly. So, well, just to kind of push back on that a little bit. Sure. About 60% of the West Bank, of course, is Area C, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's on a direct Israeli military yeah. control. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, but I mean, uh, Area C being itself determined by the Oslo Accords. So. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, yeah, in terms mm-hmm. of Oslo Accords, I agree. Um, but in Hebron, you can kind of see parallels to Area C and kind of relationships to Palestinian communities in those areas. Um, but within, um, within Hebron, you have these communities which are kind of is Jewish settler communities which have settled in the heart of the old city. Um, and then in 1994, uh, there was um, a, an American-born, I believe he was actually born in Brooklyn, um, a Jewish extremist who entered the, the Tomb of the Patriarchs and opened fire and killed a number of, I believe, almost 30 worshippers and injured hundreds more, or at least more than 100 more. Um, and from that time forward, what you had was kind of this interesting reaction was you had the increased Israeli securitization of the city in order ostensibly to kind of provide more security um, for, for who we're not exactly sure. But, um, and what, what you have is that the major Palestinian roads of the old city were closed. You have this complete closures of every single, um, you know, of the fruit market, of the vegetable market, of the main kind of commercial roads where hundreds of shops are located, um, which of course then allowed the settler community to entrench its dominance in that area because... Uh, because of the spatial logic of the of the the settlement within the city, any abandoned home becomes itself, uh, you know, a tool or this kind of node for further expansion into the city, and um, and while Israeli soldiers are, are positioned there, you know, in order to kind of quote unquote keep the peace, they also don't punish or don't stop Israeli settlers from engaging in in, in most kind of acts. I mean, the most they'll do to prevent anything is arresting the Palestinian or to kind of quiet it, but at the same time. Um, what you have is that in the years since 1994, the old city has really kind of emptied out. Um, thousands of people have left. Um, and you do have, you know, for example, the Hebron Rehabilitation Committee, which is one of the main organizations working in the Hebron Old City to kind of bring people back by ensuring the rehabilitation, by working to find those buildings which can be opened somehow. 
um, and, and rehabilitating them and moving people who don't have houses, Palestinians who don't have homes or, or are looking for kind of uh, free rent um, in that area, as well as to be part of this project of ensuring that the, the entire old city doesn't fall to the settler project. Um, you, you know, you have people moving into these areas, but and, and the, the, it's, it's so crazy, the spatial you know, aspect of it, because on one hand you have the main roads which are closed, but then through the backs of the old city, for example, the Hebron Rehabilitation Committee will create doors that go through windows, or they'll create kind of staircases into people's houses, um, like in order to allow people to live in those spaces despite the closure. And what you have, however, is ongoing harassment of residents of those places. So, for example, I, I've done a number of stories on kind of families and how um, particularly, let's say, uh, women... Um, who become the main person at home uh, in most of the, in many of these homes in, in Hebron, how they kind of have cope and what their experiences are of, of these settler invasions. Um, and, and you have on a daily basis, two times a day, three times a day, armed settlers, yeah, basically a bunch of like Americans with guns, walking into people's houses and um, ordering people around, telling children, telling uh, you know whoever happens to be in the house at that time that they need to you know get down at gunpoint. Um, and in many cases, escorted by soldiers. And, 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 you know, you hear the stories. I, you know, talked to many people who had similar experiences. And then I went there and we were doing an interview in, in this woman's house uh, with her children sitting right there. And lo and behold, two Americans walk in uh, along with two uh, soldiers, you know, and they went through some kind of hole that existed in one back part of the house from the times when that section wasn't rehabilitated um, and which they had... Uh, forbidden them on on the possibility of thousands of dollars of fine from rebuilding and for, for you know from creating that linkage to secure their own home, um, and you know they walk in and start kind of uh, discussing how they're going to redecorate the home and how it's going to change when they uh, you know when they take it over, and it's th this kind of personal like. I mean, and it was funny because from what I understand, the night raids are much worse because they are carried out with the purpose of terrifying. Um, and, and, and like I said, with the same logic that's happening in Abi Samuel and Walaja, which is to make life as miserable as possible so that people leave. Um, but, but in this daytime raid, I think what was most bizarre and most striking was just how banal it was um, and how we were sitting there conducting an interview while these soldiers were walking around and one of the kids was kind of running outside once in a while once they had left the room to kind of check on where they were in the house and see what they were doing and where they were going and if they wanted anything from us. And um, and, and just so bizarre to be a part of that and, and to kind of go with one of the kids to one of the neighboring houses to alert them that the soldiers are back and that the settlers might try to enter their house. And I think it's 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 very... Um, I I don't know. It's just it's such a bizarre, horrible, d disgusting, and strange situation in, in that city that I don't. And and then and of course one of the strangest parts about it is, and, and this gets to the whole. I I almost want to call it. I mean, there's more sophisticated ways to describe it. A kind of Disneylandification of this whole of the whole Israeli project, the whole narrative, which is to create a landscape that's familiar to people who are not from here. Um, and which, of course, in order to do that, you have to create signposts, you have to create the, this kind of bucolic tourist uh, scenery at every single point. And, and how do you do that? So visit, visit Palestine poster, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you have, yeah, exactly. Visit Palestine poster from the 1930s, which was created by Zionists. But then, for example, in the old city of Hebron, which at every point you're stuck with these, you know, the concrete walls that the Israeli military puts in every place when they want to block off roads and block off access. Um, 
you have this bizarre collective of called Artists for Israel that has then decorated half of the city in free Israel graffiti, which is the most bizarre and strange graffiti I could ever imagine. I mean, there's so many slogans you could come up with to support Zionism and Hebron. Free Israel is a quite... I just... I'm not sure if even at the most basic level of logic if it makes any sense or if it works. Um, and and so, if, you know, you have as your... And of course, when I say this, I mean, Palestinians cannot walk in that part of the city, but, you know, me as a foreigner being able to access those areas, walking around and seeing free Israel graffiti, free Israel stickers, you know, artists for Israel with these big, you know, bizarre mixture of biblical and military scenes. Um, and I remember a friend of mine talking about kind of... was walking with a tour group to sh- kind of showing them the reality of Hebron and, and kind of how, how life looks in that city. And one of the soldiers, who was American again, um, who had you know signed up to move to Israel and, and joined the army, immediately asked her, you know, do you think I'm a horrible person? Um, and you know, she told him straight up, yeah, you think you're an awful person. Um, but at the same time, my experience with every every time I've interacted with a soldier in that city has been, uh, you know, soldiers kind of American soldiers specifically scoffing at me and saying, um, oh, I'm the big bad IDF, I'm the big bad Israeli soldier, and it's it's really you know, in a mocking kind of comedic way. And it's, I guess, it's it's just very, it's hard to come to terms with and to kind of wrap your mind around how um, not only the spatial logic, but also just kind of this reminder that it is instituted by individual people, and particularly in a city like Hebron. It's not watchtowers. It's not big concrete walls where you can't see the person behind the camera. It's, you know, it's a 19-year-old guy with a gun looking at you. Mm. The last thing I'd like to talk about, uh, maybe um, as, a, as a conclusion to our conversation and maybe uh, to reduce the amount of things we are forgetting because it's obviously so many, so many additional situations that would deserve to be described to, 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 to construct, to, descri- to, to, make, to, examine, to examine this uh, apartheid landscape is, um, is specific to a population we always tend to forget when... Um, when uh, we deal with um, the occupation in general, which is the population of the Bedouins um, here on, on, on both sides of the walls. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, recently there was this, uh, there was this uh, politi- political plan called the, the Prower Plan that um, uh, could, was threatening um, uh, in an in a incredibly significant way the, the very the very uh, daily life of uh, of uh, and rights of uh, of the Bedouins in the, in the Negev in particular, um, and so uh, and and this plan has been uh, suspended, but we we don't know we don't know what's going to happen with it. Um, but so once again with uh, with my with my hand you'll you'll be you you've been uh, you've been working on uh, on various articles uh, about this specific population. So could you maybe. Uh, uh, tell us about it as a as a form of conclusion of this very rich conversation. Of course, I think um, one thing I always kind of go back to and try and and I feel like I can't stress enough is that it's impossible or extremely difficult to understand what's happening here if you only look at 1967 as a starting point. Um, and it's you, there there came a moment, particularly post 1967, and I think it really kind of crystallized in the, in the Oslo moment in the 1990s when the, this, this two-state ideal really came to fruition or people began to believe that it was about to come to fruition, let's say. Um, 
that that Israel in nineteen that in you know with Israel within the nineteen sixty seven borders within the Green Line was okay. It was fine. It was you know at its most most extreme, it was like a, a darling of the left and the kibbutz and all this kind of faux socialist infrastructure that they created. Um, and that the occupation was something else, and that the nature of Israel changed in 1967. Um, but as the case of the Bedouins makes very clear, and, I, and as I think is indicative of the larger Palestinian experience within Israel, um, as well as the issue of the, the millions of refugees who are who you know descendants of those who were kicked out of their homes in what is today Israel, um, is that this 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 racialized nature, uh, this, this settler colonial project. Um, began, I mean, not only 1948, before 1948, when the kind of the, the plans were laid for what would, what would happen. And the Bedouins, like I said, I think are a good example of how this works on, on a very specific level. So you had, um, uh, if I'm not getting the numbers off, um, about 100,000 Bedouins who were living in the Negev Desert, primarily in the south of what is today Israel, um, before 1948. So it mandated Palestine under British control at that time. And uh, what you had in 1948 um, during the Israeli quote-unquote war of independence um, or the catastrophe, catastrophe as it's known in Arabic um, is that 90% of those people were forced off of the areas that they were living in and were expelled you know, across a border, whether it be into Jordan or into the West Bank uh, and I believe into the Sinai in Egypt as well. And, and of course, and, and um, is that although this was occurring as part of the larger expulsions of Palestinians within Israel, it was also justified very explicitly through this, the, you know, the discourse of, well, they're nomadic people and they're always moving around anyway, so now they're just going to move somewhere else, which I think, is, as we've discussed, is um, in many ways reminiscent um, of, of European discourse right now towards Roma communities and this kind of forced movement of people that is then justified through, you know, this illusion of cultural habits. Um, and, and so, and, and this is definitely something that continues until today uh, within, within Israel, which we'll kind of get to right now. Um, and so after this expulsion uh, of 90% of the community, first of all, all Palestinians within Israel were living under military rule until 1966. Um, so completely, I mean, basically, what, something very much akin to what happened in the West Bank and Gaza after 1967 was basically t- tested on the Palestinians of Israel from 1948 until 1966. And um, the Bedouins had a very specific situation, which was that they had previously lived across the, the southern Negev, uh, across the Negev, the southern kind of part of Israel. Um, but they were forced into an area which is actually called a reservation, um, and they were concentrated within this uh, this kind of restricted zone, um, which was some of the least fertile land across the Negev. Um, and when, while the Negev is a desert, there are you know many kind of plains, and there are there is agriculture, fertile land, or land that's better for grazing, for example, which is important for Bedouin communities. Um, and they were forced into the zone. Whatever lands that were previously in their use, which were generally under kind of public or state domain, were, were confiscated or expropriated, um, and which today you do have. Um, interestingly enough, the majority of those Israeli settlements, um, or you know, because you know we call them Israeli cities now, but um, that are lo- that are that receive the majority of the uh, missile, not missile, the majority of the rocket fire from Gaza, um, are built on lands that were expropriated from the, the Bedouin communities. Um, and uh, so these 
they were, like I said, they were forced into reservations, they were forced to live there, and over time, of course, these Palestinians began to settle and to, and to move and to kind of build homes and to begin um, what, what could be called like a semi-nomadic form of life, um, but was still very much agriculturally based um, and which had a certain degree of movement but was, was much more sedentary. And now, what began happening, let's say, in the 1970s and 80s, just as the settlement movement began moving in the West Bank and Gaza, um, and you had this kind of Jewish settlement project uh, emerging, is that you also had a renewed focus um, on ensuring Jewish settlement uh, within Israel in areas that were primarily Arab, um, in which, the, you know, in 1948, during the expulsions, that these areas were not uh, cleansed of their, of their Palestinian communities. And you had this expansion of Jewish settlement within the southern desert region that then has become increasingly in the last few years, um, there has become this increasing discourse of the need to like almost reconcentrate the Bedouins from this area which comprises about 10% of the Bedouin, uh, sorry, of the Negev where they're living. Um, now, the, now the idea that's being promoted is that they need to be forced to move into cities. Um, and so... As I mentioned, they were forced to move into the reservation zones, build communities inside those reservation zones. And now, in the last you know, few decades, these communities have come under threat of demolition and, uh, and are regularly uh, threatened with demolition, um, you know, house by house or entire communities at the same time. And the state has, you know, then the power plant, which you mentioned, um, was probably the most explicit or like I said the most like all-encompassing version of this kind of plan but it, it was working slowly before and it continues to work now um, which was that the power plant specifically wanted to take all of these veteran communities and force them to move into a couple of cities that were built by Israel. Now Israel has built in the past a few cities and, and a certain percentage of the, of the Bedouins have moved to those cities but the cities um, you know, almost completely lack any kind of economic investment. They're completely segregated, of course. They have no relationship to the Jewish communities around them. Those neighborhoods that are in the Jewish cities uh, around them are, are completely discriminated against, of course, by the same communities. Um, and in terms of funding and education, any kind of social services, they are completely lacking compared to the Jewish neighbors. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say neighbors because, the, you know, the segregation is quite intense to call them neighbors. But... Um, and, and so there has been a great degree of grassroots resistance among the Bedouins to, uh, so the power plan, which, as you mentioned, was, was um, shelved, but to, to similar plans to force them into cities and, and to force them um, into these concentrated zones. And what's interesting, particularly regarding the Bedouin, which is something we also see with the Druze uh, within the Palestinian community mm -hmm. in Israel, um, is that from the beginning of the state, efforts were made by Israeli military authorities to reach out to tribal leaders and to leaders of the Bedouin. And to in, in, this much, in this way, they very much reinforced the control of these tribal leaders. And they reinforced, um, you know, through this familiar technique of colonialism, of, of saying that the, the Bedouins are not ready for democracy. That's why we, negoti we negotiate with the tribal leaders on their behalf, which then, of course, reinforces the tribal you know, structure and authority. Um, and uh, you have this kind of... Um, what was I saying? The, the You're talking about the military service now. Oh, right, right. Yes, exactly. So um, that Bedouins also tend to, to, to volunteer for military service at much higher rates than others, um, which is part of this contract that's kind of existed from the beginning. With the Druze, it was a much more formalized contract that compulsory military service was instituted for all Palestinians of the Druze religion. Um, but for the Bedouins, it became a kind of voluntary tradition among a large percentage of Bedouins. Um, but I think as... as 
in, in many other countries, it's, it's very easy to see. When you deprive uh, a marginalized population of any kind of resources or access to economic opportunity, the military becomes one of the best ways um, to, to kind of, uh, to advance, or, or, you know, it seems to be a good option. And particularly when the military heavily recruits in these marginalized areas, um, and specifically wants Bedouins because they are, they speak Arabic, they're Palestinian, but at the same time, they are kind of on the margins of Palestinian society themselves. Um, uh, you know, they become these kind of ideal candidates. But what in the last few years, you've really had a pushback. Um, and I think this really speaks to an increasing, um, oh, you know, this one-state reality we're seeing, which is that increasingly it becomes difficult for Palestinians to really separate what's happening on either side, you know, in the West Bank or in Israel or in Gaza, because you do see this leveling of the situation in many ways in terms of the treatment uh, of Palestinians inside Israel and those in the West Bank in, in many ways. Um, and in many of the privileges that many that Palestinians in Israel or Arab Israelis, as they're called in, by in, you know, the Israeli press, um, that they began, that they used to enjoy, that they saw themselves enjoying, they kind of see uh, how flimsy they are and how, and how lacking they are in terms of continued discrimination against these communities. And so in the, in the Bedouin communities recently, you've had, an, you know, after the power plan, which was really the first sustained political mobilization um, that did include Palestinians from across Israel uh, in it on behalf of the Bedouins or kind of working with the Bedouins as part of this mass mobilization um, that wasn't confined to the Bedouin communities. Um, you do have now increasing agitation, increasing protests and clashes in the South, um, which demonstrate, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, they demonstrate the fact that even though the plan went away, you do have continued attempts to demolish and continued attempts based on security, you know, faux security reasoning or rationale um, to, to move these communities and force them out. Um, and, and you actually have now a power plan, uh, a parallel power plan being implemented by the Israeli military in the West Bank, actually, for tens of thousands of Bedouins here who are actually descendants of refugees, you know, Bedouins who were forced out of the Negev originally, um, which is exactly following the same plan, pushing them into two cities and um, taking those extra lands for, for settlements. And um, so, I, I mean, so I think, I, I guess as we, we were talking about earlier, it, it's becoming harder and harder, um, yeah, to really see any difference between the West Bank and, and, and Israel proper. And, and I think this apartheid reality, this one-state reality, um, that many people are speaking about uh, is very much present and is very much kind of how it looks on the ground. Mm -hmm. Well, Alex, thank you, thank you very much for uh, for uh, this uh, uh, very uh, interesting description. And uh, once again, I, I think we can we can know we cannot insist enough on the fact that uh, we could continue like that for for many many more uh, examples, and that that would once again. Um, complexifies the situation, and and complexity is not is not a, is not uh, going against the, the violence of the. I mean, it does not make the violence of the apartheid any any less than what it is. So, I think the more the more we look at all those issues, the more we're able to to uh, to go against them. So, um, so thank you for both chapters of those conversations. Uh, two very uh, two very different conversation but equally rich and um, and uh, uh, good luck with uh, the continuing your work here yeah, thank you very much for having me thanks